I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to ask that you not consider that particular instruction as any sort of indication as to what we'll do in the weeks ahead. But for this week, we're going to look at a very well-known parable of Jesus called the parable of the sower. As we sang the last song, the first verse, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word. And I wonder if that's why we have come today. I hope that it is. The verse continues, Take your truth and plant it deep in us. When we read from James at the beginning of the service, we came upon verse 21, where James writes something very similar. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And there's quite a bit of congruency to the songs that we're singing and to the message that we are considering this morning. On the one hand, we have opened our Bibles to perhaps the most well-known parable of Jesus, the parable of the sower, of, of a man who is sowing seed, planting something in the ground. And we have sung as we approached God, asking Him to implant His Word, His truth deeply in us. And that's in fact a good thing because James has told us, as we read chapter 1, that we need the implanted Word of God in our lives because it is able to save our souls. And that's a lot of congruency. We read now in chapter 13... Verse 1 tells us, On the same day, Jesus went out of the house, and he sat by the sea, and a great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now, I have never seen anything like this at the ocean. I have been to the ocean many times. I was uh, in my 20s before my wife finally convinced me that the ocean was worth seeing. I grew up without it. My family didn't take those kinds of trips. Allison grew up with those kinds of trips, and I thought, what is there to see? It's a lot of water. There's not much there. Um, But having seen the ocean many times now and being impressed uh, by it and making a regular thing of it for our family, I have never seen a great multitude gathered to hear someone by the sea. I've never seen anything quite like that. Yet we're told in the opening verses that Jesus, he is by the sea, he has left someone's house, and he has now gone out to the shoreline so that there is now nothing behind him except water. There is no distraction, there is no obstacle in the way. And having positioned himself at the shoreline, in fact, great multitudes have come. And they have not come to look at the water, which is what I do when I go to the ocean. They have not come to play in the sand. They have not come to go about their morning chores. 
these people have heard of Jesus. He has done remarkable things. He has now visited their village, their city. Because as we're told earlier in Matthew, he's gone about visiting all of these places. And he has moved himself in a position to where the people know he is going to speak. And there is a huge crowd. And if you can, for a moment, just imagine the excitement that that must have generated among, specifically among, Jesus' disciples. By this point, he has called all of them. There are 12 of them formally recognized. He has called them all to himself. And as they have come, they have left behind jobs, and they have left families. They have left aside futures of their own provision, their own livelihood, their own careers. Their lives have been placed on hold at this point in the text for quite some time, and they have been following Jesus around. And as they have followed Jesus around, there have certainly been signs of the kingdom that Jesus keeps preaching. For instance, he does the kind of things that other people are unable to do. He speaks in ways that other people are unwilling or unable to speak. And so they're following him around, and yet, to this point, there has been no sense of when this kingdom is going to formally begin. Like, there's not been any, any army that has been raised to throw out the Romans. There's not been any talk of palace or government or construction or... So far, they are just following Jesus around. And all they really have to cling to as disciples are when they get to moments like this, when he's getting ready to speak, and there are huge crowds, and this must have been such a great confidence for them. This must have been such an exciting thing. Okay, we are getting somewhere. Okay, we are seeing something happen here. You know, because what would happen? Well, Jesus, he would speak to these crowds, and then he would leave. Sometimes he would get in the boat and he would go to the other side of the sea and just leave them all behind. You know, and every time it's like starting over in a new place. So this is a very exciting thing, I would imagine, for the disciples when all of these people come and it seems like what they see in Jesus is being appreciated on a grand scale, is being recognized in a large way. So Jesus gets into a boat and he sits down and the whole multitude stood on the seashore. This is how it was in ancient times. The teacher would sit down, everybody else would stand up. We've changed that around, I've noticed over the years. I have to wear shoes with like stuff inside them. I'm standing up the whole time and you guys get to sit and fall asleep. I think we'd have less people drifting off in the service if we all stood up the whole time. Uh, or else it would be much more noticeable when someone finally drifted off, I'll tell you that. Now, we are familiar, I think, with part of the disciples' excitement, because I think we feel this way ourselves sometimes. You go to a Christian conference, if you've ever been to one of those, and you see a large assembly of people, all professing Christ, some of them singing very passionately or else just listening, and you get a sense of the majesty of what it means when a large group of people come together all with the purpose of praising God. And it's an exciting thing. It's a compelling thing. Or we have a Sunday of particular significance, like an Easter service, 
and we, we fill up the entire sanctuary, small and humble as it is, and everybody comes together, and people, because it is a time of Easter, are generally approaching the day with their minds in an appropriate place of expectation, and it's an exciting thing. Or you invite someone to come to church, or you notice that someone is coming to church all of a sudden, and you say, isn't that wonderful? that they're coming now to church. They're coming and they are hearing the word of God preached and declared. Isn't that great that they are here? And there's an excitement. I'm glad that they're coming. I'm glad that they're sitting there. I'm glad that they're listening. In the midst of all of this excitement, it does not appear that Jesus is overcome with enthusiasm. Does not appear. And I say that because of the way he approaches this whole thing. As we're going to read in the verses ahead, he actually tells a less than compelling story. It may seem compelling to you, but it is less than compelling in and of itself. I mean, you imagine the expectation well, what is he going to say to us? And he stands up and he talks about a man who went out and threw a bunch of seed around. And some of it did not grow, and some of it grew for a little while, some of it grew and was choked out by weeds, and then some of it grew and produced fruit. And as best we could tell, that's his opening story, without any explanation. And you can imagine people thinking, well, that doesn't seem profound. I mean, if you go out in your yard and you just throw seed around, that's what's basically going to happen. Some of it's going to grow, some of it's not going to grow, some will grow for a little bit. And it's like we come out here, we, we come with the expectation of hearing something great, and this does not exactly seem like a profound message. Jesus does not seem overcome with this. In fact, he's actually giving a message about who is going to go to heaven and who is going to go to hell. And that is not a strange message to Jesus. After all, it's not much different from the wise man and the foolish man, which we know he also employed. You remember the guy who builds his house on a rock versus the guy who builds his house on the sand? It's not much different from the broad path and the narrow path. You remember that story? There's a bunch of people on one path, and then there's a far different path, a narrow path. This is actually a parable about who's going to heaven and who's going to go to hell. But it's unclear in the reading of this, that any of his listeners gathered on the shoreline to hear him talk this day ever picked up on any of that. It's unclear. His disciples require their own explanation themselves on an aside later on. It's not at all clear that this penetrated, that this made it through, that people got this. So, you have all these people, here is your chance, Jesus, to really... Give them your best message, you know? Give them the good one. Give them, you know, the, give them the best one. And he stands up and he tells a story about a guy who throws seed around. And it's like... Pfft. It's one of those stories where you hear it and you wonder, one of two things is true here. Either this is so profound that I don't see it, or there is nothing profound about this at all because this is about as ordinary as it could possibly get. Have you ever been in one of those situations where somebody's like, hey, you got to read this book or hey, you got to listen to this thing or hey, and you click on it or you read it or you look at it and you're like, I have no idea what this person got out of it. Like this, you know, it's one of those kinds of scenarios here. Well, 
What is Jesus preaching? It's a very simple message. We read it here through the first uh, nine verses, beginning in verse 3. It says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed. Some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Seems plausible. Some fell on the stony places where they did not have much earth, and they sprang, immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now again, I hope that I've gone on long enough that you can consider that and ask yourself, is that a profound message or is it a ridiculous message? You know, and that, that surely must have been the reaction by those people on the shoreline. What in the world have we just listened to? Now, Jesus goes on in verses 10 through 17 to explain to his disciples privately so why he has given the message that he has given. And we're not going to go through all the text today because I want to get to the interpretation. But the basic explanation that Jesus gives is some people are coming here with ears to hear the message of the kingdom and some people are coming here without ears to hear the message of the kingdom. Some people are coming here and they have a very different expectation than what they're going to get. They have a very different idea. You know, we gather together on Sunday morning. And I don't know how many people we have here this morning. Um, but in a group this size, it's plausible that we have probably come here for different reasons today. Not that any of those are necessarily bad or wrong, I don't know. But when you gather together in a group this size, it's reasonable to wonder if perhaps some have come without an expectation to truly hear and understand the Word of God. If some have come with a, a misguided idea of what's going to happen here today. Now, you, you can read these verses, and I'll just tell you, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And when he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, he's quoting specifically from a passage in Isaiah where God is responding to people who are approaching God with wrong expectations of what He will do in the nation of Israel. And he's basically saying, the reason I am speaking in these parables is because, as happened in the time of Isaiah... It is not given for everybody to hear and understand these things. Some people, as the prophet Isaiah experienced, have come to this with a completely ungodly expectation of what's going to happen here. And to them, it's not been given to understand what I'm saying. And I wonder how you've come today. I wonder how we come each Sunday by Sunday, each week by week. Um... There were certainly lots of expectations in Israel. Some of them probably came looking for the person who is going to overthrow the Romans or 
increased the boundaries of the land in the way the Old Testament had promised. Some of them were just coming hoping to have someone healed or a baby touched or kissed, blessed by God. And I wonder what our expectations are today. Now Jesus, throughout his ministry, preached a very simple message of the kingdom, but a message that was not fully revealed and fully understood until after his death and resurrection, at which point the Holy Spirit comes and his disciples are commanded, look now, go and tell everybody this message as clearly as possible. There's no more cryptic parables at that point. Go lay out very clearly what the gospel is to the entire world, right? And what is the message of the kingdom? Well, I think we can summarize it in just a few basic ways. If you've wondered how to present this, I'll suggest that this is a good way to do it. Um, it starts with what's traditionally known as the Roman road. And in Romans 3.23, we're told that all have sinned, everybody has sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that was a message of John the Baptist. That was the message of Jesus. Uh, we heard parts of that from James. Where, uh, Justin read about the law of liberty, where he said that, look, you can say, I'm not an adulterer, but if you're a murderer, if you've broken some other command, you're just as guilty of breaking the law as anyone else. Well, that is the message of Jesus. That's the message delivered to his apostles. We are all sinners. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. Because we are all sinners, we have earned our wage, which is death. And we know he's not merely talking about our physical earthly death, because then Paul goes on to write, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So Paul, when he says the wages of sin is death, has something eternal in view. Because of our sin, because of our destruction, because of the evil that we corrupt the image of God and our bodies with, we are deserving of eternal separation from God in hell. But then there's the hope that the gift of God is eternal life. Now what is this? Well, John 3.16 tells us that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, will not experience the wages of sin, but have everlasting life. And so we see a progress to this message. We're sinners, we're deserving of death, we're deserving of hell, we're deserving of judgment. Jesus has come as a gift of God so that if we believe on him, we can have everlasting life. How did this happen? Well, I like this verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. God made Jesus, who was not a sinner, on the cross to become the picture of all of our sin. So that when Jesus goes to the cross, he is experiencing, if you will, our judgment. Remember, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus had no sin. He did not earn death. He did not deserve death. And instead, he offers himself as a substitute a payment for what we deserve. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that's the cross, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. In other words, I am not righteous because I have managed to pick myself up by the bootstraps and live a great life. I'm righteous in him. 
That's what it says. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. There's an exchange that takes place. This exchange is Jesus bearing my sin and my judgment in my place on the cross. And I receive his righteous life that he lived as my legal standing before God. He becomes the human embodiment of all of those Old Testament sacrifices where someone would sin and they would take a lamb or an animal to the altar and they would put their hand on the head of that lamb and the priest would offer that lamb as a sacrifice to God and you think of the blood and the gore and the gruesomeness of that. That gruesomeness is meant to picture for Israel in the Old Testament the gruesomeness of their own sin. And the picture of it is this animal is being offered to God in my place because if I actually got what I deserved for my sin, I would be the one on that altar. And all of those Old Testament animal sacrifices are pointing toward the giving of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. So now, he who knew no sin has become, if you will, sin for us. And by him taking on our sin and experience the sacrifice of the cross, we experience the legal righteousness of Jesus eternally forever. Say, okay, well, that's what God did, but what is the mechanism of this exchange? And then you come to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, which finishes the story. By grace we are saved. It's a gift. That's what grace is. It's a gift. By grace we are saved through faith. And this is the fulfillment of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts him, whoever puts their faith in him, may be saved. Think about that. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. You haven't come to this position of trusting God by your own intellectual power. It's not of you. The faith to believe these things didn't just magically well up inside of you because of your own creativity or because someone did a great job saying it to you and a bad job saying it to someone else. No, by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself, it is the gift of God. So, this is generally the message of the gospel that Jesus and his apostles are preaching all throughout the New Testament. And Jesus is preaching this message himself, albeit without the clarity of the cross. If you were to turn to Matthew 9, you'd see in the calling of Matthew that Jesus makes it very clear, I called this tax collector because I came to save sinners. Sinners. It's that passage where he's like, look, I didn't come here to, to, to nuzzle up to all of you religiously approved people. I came here for guys like Matthew, the tax collector. And you can see a sense of what Romans tells us in that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Matthew was an embodiment of that. In Matthew 11, Jesus is preaching about the judgment that's going to come into the world for unrepentant sinners. This is whole passage, woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you. And he mentions these cities whom he's preached in, and the people never repented. They never turned away from their sin. They never trusted the message he was preaching. 
They came, Jesus came to their towns, they gathered with a big assembly like this, they heard what he had to say, and they went right back to their lives as normal. Jesus says, no, that's not how you enter into the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 12, he talks about who he is as Lord, who he is as King, who he is as a Savior. He says, look, you guys get excited about the temple. Here I am, and I'm greater than the temple. You better give your life to me. And he's talking about his death and resurrection in Matthew 12 and verse 40. So this is the message he's preaching. And I want to ask you, how patient has Jesus been in your life to have this message delivered to you over and over and over again? I can't speak for you, but I can say for my life, incredibly patient. And here is Jesus preaching this message over and over and over again. I look around at the faces, many of whom I've been preaching to for quite some time. Just think about God's patience in your life that he continues to deliver a message of the gospel to you over and over and over again. And oftentimes we come to this message and we come to it with a very different expectation of what should happen here. Yes, I've heard that message, but now I would like for things to get better with my finances. Or now I would like for things to get better with my marriage. Or now I'd really like to think about how I can have a good season with this activity or with this thing. But now I am ready for something else. And you could just marvel for a second at how patient Jesus is with the same thing over and over again. And you might even ask, if this message is so simple as this, if this message is so clear as this, then why isn't everybody saved? And now I ask you to put yourself in a position of this crowd on this shore as they're looking out over the water with the singular man sitting in a boat and talking to them. They have all come out to hear him. Are all of these people going to be saved now? Are all of these people... I mean, this is not a complicated message. What is going to happen to this big crowd? Well, here is Jesus' explanation in his parable, verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Now, he's talking to his disciples. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. So you might remember there was an initial landing spot of the seed and it was on a path and if you went out and threw a bunch of seed and some of it made its way to a sidewalk it would just sit there until birds came and gobbled it up and that would be the end of the seed it'd get washed nothing would happen with it it would it wouldn't grow what's the meaning of this jesus well some people are just never going to receive this message they are never going to repent they're never going to return. They're never going to uh, accept it. They hear the gospel and it doesn't sound good to them. It's not that they don't understand what's being suggested. It's not that they, you know, they just can't comprehend someone going to a cross or God. or No, no, it's intellectually they can follow, but the idea that this is a good thing, they, they don't go there. They don't go there. Um, we all have our lifestyles and the things that we enjoy doing we have our friends people that we want to be around 
We have our priorities as we have set them. This is the way my life is. Here is the message of Jesus. This message involves radical change. It's not that I don't understand what you're saying, but that doesn't sound good to me. But what about heaven? But what about hell? But what about sin? Yes, I understand what you're saying about that. I don't care. I think I can go to heaven a different way. I think I'll be okay on my own, or I don't believe in any of that. I understand what you're saying. None of this sounds reasonable or good to me. I do not want this. I do not want to change. That's a response. Why would anyone believe that? Why would anyone want to do that? That's a response. Verse 20, He who received the seed on stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Okay? We have first of all the people who don't want to change. We have second of all the people who are initially very interested in this. Like they hear the gospel, they hear this message, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, for by grace you saved through. They hear the message, it makes sense, it sounds good, they know they need it. And like seed that is on, you ever try to plant seed in rocky ground? Like seed that, you, this happens in the spring every year. You know, people, they look at the ground and they see a section of dirt and they think, it's dirt. If I plant something, it'll grow. And it does in the spring and then the summer comes out and when the water starts to not be as dense in the soil and you realize, wait a minute, some joker had gravel under this whole area of dirt at one point. Like it just withers and dies. Nothing comes from it. These are people who receive the message, yes, this sounds good, but then when outward pressure comes, they just, they just wither and fall over. There was no true depth to what the Word... The Word of God did not, as we sang this morning, plant itself deeply inside of their hearts and lives. There was a superficial reception. It's the idea of, hey, didn't you get baptized last month? Weren't you baptized last year? Didn't you join the church three months ago? Yes, yes, yes. I haven't seen you in a long time. Well, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Like, external pressure, be it tribulation, be it difficulty, be it persecution, be it challenge, external pressure started to infringe upon what initially sounded so good and their commitments just kind of withered and died. Just fell over. And no amount of propping it up with uh, tomato cages and string, etc. is going to alleviate the problem. This thing is dead. It's not alive. It's not real. Um, you think, well, okay. But what are we actually talking about here? I mean, you talk about external pressure... I mean, it's not like we live in a culture where people are being put to death because it doesn't have to be anything quite that dramatic. Peter was nearly done over by a question from a little girl around a campfire. It's like a servant girl. 
Were you with one of those guys up there? No, I never even knew Jesus. So when we think about external pressure, let's not find a way to excuse ourselves from the challenge of this threat by simply saying, well, that doesn't happen where we live. No, no, no. I've been a Christian a long time. There are lots of external pressures when it comes to what we believe and what the Word of God says. It can be a simple thing. It can be a, what do you mean? You're not laughing at my jokes anymore. You don't think that's funny anymore. You don't watch the same stuff that I watch anymore. What's happened to you? Why aren't you drinking with us anymore? Why aren't you doing this with us anymore? Oh, you think you're better than everybody else, huh? Oh, you think you're better? Yeah, I know you're a very religious person, right? It's just external pressure. Here's the word of God. I like it. I see it as a good thing. I, w- I see something good. I don't want to go to hell when I die. Oh, but I don't like this feeling of the way people perceive me now in the world. And they just fall over. It's not comfortable. The uncomfortableness of the Christian life. Verse 22 Now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word of God and he becomes unfruitful. This is inward. At external pressure, this is inward. This is, yeah, that sounds good. I think I can go to church on Sundays. I think I can manage that. Yeah, you know, I don't I generally agree that the stuff the Bible says is wrong is wrong and yeah, okay, all right. And so you're going along and there's no big blatant obvious sin that anybody's calling you out on and you're showing up regularly and you're there week by week. But as all of this is unfolding, you realize that within yourself are desires for a life that doesn't exactly look like take up my cross daily and follow Jesus. Like inside of me, it would actually be really nice if I could amass this much money over here. (laughs) It would actually be kind of nice if I could get to a spot where I could do this, this, and this, and this. Actually, as much as I love Jesus, I also have these goals, which are going to constantly take me away from serving the Lord faithfully. As much as I love Jesus... I find this thing particularly interesting, and so I'm going to just kind of try to straddle both sides of it constantly forever. And this is described in a parable of the sower as thorns and weeds intruding onto something that otherwise would be healthy, but it's not because it doesn't have room to be healthy, because life is so full of all of these other very, very important things. You know, these things that are more important than what's going to happen when we die. Life is just filled of things that are so much more important. And I wouldn't believe for a second that the most faithful Christian here, which I certainly would not presume to be myself, has somehow been immune to these own challenges and temptations in their own life. You get going and you're going well for a while and then cross-country season begins. I look at my son. And now life is about... Every day, how can I get better at cross-country? And some of you are saying, well, that is ridiculous. I would never be interested in trying to get better at cross-country. Okay, the new project at home starts. 
The new project at work begins. The new season of the show releases. Whatever it is. The new opportunity at work emerges. I don't know what it is. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and all the inward desires that we have just constantly creep up until our devotion to God is just choked out. There's no room for it. And fourth, verse 23, but he who receives seed on the good ground is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. And this is a life actually lived unto Jesus. Now, I'll close with this idea here. A life that bears fruit, this fourth category, that endures the outward pressures, the sitting alone at lunchtime. A life that bears fruit, that endures the outward pressures, that endures the inward pressures. The long thoughts on Sunday afternoon at a message like this that say, you know, I shouldn't be giving as much time as I am to this. A life that endures the outward pressure. A life that endures the inward pressure. A life that's marked by repentance, by turning away from sin, and by growth, and by change. That is a life that has been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a person who has received the message of the kingdom deeply rooted and implanted in their hearts. That's who goes to heaven. That's who goes to heaven. That's who has real spiritual life. Not because of the fruit that is produced. They don't have heaven because they produced fruit. The fruit production is just the natural consequence of what the Word of God brings about in a person's life when it's been implanted deeply within them. When it's been cultivated by the teaching and the reception of God's Word. When it's given time to grow and prosper in someone's life. It produces fruit. Look at the thief on the cross who makes a last-minute confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, please save me, puts his faith in Jesus at the last possible moment. And you could say, what fruit did his life produce? We could debate that, but that's not the point because it's not fruit that saves the thief on the cross. It's what happens inside the thief on the cross so that if that thief were allowed to live and flourish, you can be sure fruit would grow. We're not saved because of the fruit production, because of the good things that we do. Why are we saved then? Because we have received the word of the gospel. We have received the message of Jesus. We have believed and we have trusted Jesus as our Lord. The fruit is just the natural evidence of that. And Jesus is saying this to this multitude of people. And he's reasoning with them. Remember this. Think on this. And some people hear it and all they got is a story about a farmer throwing seed. And other people are like, what is he actually saying? So you have to go home and you have to wrestle with this. Where do I fit into all of these things? 
And what do I make of the dangers of these things? How do I deal with the outward pressure? How do I deal with internal desire? What do I make of my life? Do I see the fruit that's supposed to be the natural evidence of God's word deeply implanted in me? Or if I'm being honest, are there some weeds that are encroaching upon this profession of faith in my life? Are there some things that I need to talk about with my wife? Are there some things that I need to talk about with my children? That's me as a father speaking. A Christian takes care of what they've been entrusted with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A Christian values deeply the spiritual life that they have in God and they cultivate it through God's word and through the evaluation, the examination of what they're doing and how they're living. A Christian does that not one time, but consistently because you will consistently find things that need pruned back and addressed and considered. If you're not a Christian, as we go on to baptism and as we move on today, let me tell you, this is heaven and hell stuff. This is more important than whatever else you're distracted by. And it's more important than anything you're afraid of giving up in Christian living. And it's more important than any relationship or pressure that you have anxiety about facing. It's important enough that God himself took on flesh and blood in order to die. It's that important. So it's not something to be messing around with. It's something to settle in your heart today. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, I have no idea in sharing in your word this morning how the seed has fallen among the soils today. I also ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for wherever I've done a poor job of this. Please forgive me where I'm insufficient and inadequate. But I know that you're powerful enough to work in hearts and minds despite the inefficiency or the inadequacy of the message. That your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, I just I plead with you now to work in people's minds. I ask, Father, that you'll bless us as we try to make it through this Christian life together. That we'll not lean on our own understanding, but that we'll trust you. I pray, Father, that we will encourage one another and exhort one another as we get up from this place today. That rather than having our minds entirely on ourselves, that we will recognize the privilege and the obligation to support Christian men and women around us who have their own struggles, both outward pressures and inward desires, that will be faithful as a family to tend to each other, 
I thank you for this people and this place and for how you sustain it. I ask, Father, that you'll bless us as we close. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.